Amen. You can grab a seat. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope Church. Glad you're here uh, on a day where we got to watch a lot of babies in formal wear. I don't know if you're into that or not. I think it's hilarious. Uh, there was one baby coming in, and the mom had put him in a vest and a bow tie, uh, which, you know, if he could vocalize, I'm sure he would have objected, but he can't. And so she put him in a vest and a bow tie. And my mother was walking by, and I said, oh, mom, did you see the cute baby? He's got a bow tie. And she was like, where is it? And she was right, because baby necks just sort of consume everything underneath them. <laughs> it's sort of eating up the bow tie. Very, very adorable. Something I'm looking forward to as I age, uh, my own neck, gobbling up bow ties. But uh, it was really cute. Thank you for being with us as we talked through, looked at, committed ourselves to caring for these families, trying to work with them to help those children be shepherded through what is a a contentious world, a world where it's not easy or obvious to know and understand and believe what's true. In Christianity, we talk about something that is both true and good. It it has to actually be true if it's going to do anything for you. Otherwise, it's just sort of like, you know, psychobabble. It's something that you use to kind of make yourself feel better for now. It has to be true, but it also has to do something good for you. What good is it to declare truth when it's just going to tear you apart, break you down, when there's no, no meaning, no joy, no hope to be found in it? In Christianity, we have both. We have something that is satisfying, but that is also true. And you can't talk about everything every week. Today, we're not going to be able to focus as well on the true part. We're going to be much more focused on the satisfying part. And I think you can probably understand why. As we're doing this series, we're called Recharge. It's the idea that we are trying to figure out how is it that the Christian life is lived with with vigor, How is it that the Christian goes out and dies to himself and does whatever is possible in order to build the kingdom, then recharges? And maybe you're not, you know, going out there and turning foreign armies to flight. Maybe you're just trying to get through Tuesday with the new level of of grief in your world, the new level of pain in your life for you. What are the resources in Christianity to recharge? Last week, Bowers was telling me he liked the graphic fine, but he thought the battery should probably be like red instead of green, <laughs> which is an artistically you know, valid criticism. But I think he was also just confessing. Like, I, I think that's what he feels like. And I think for a lot of us, that's where we're at. So how do we plug in? What do we find when we plug in? Why is it? That for many of us, our relationship with God feels so stressed or distant. You know, on Mother's Day, we're celebrating these ladies who give of themselves for you. They gave of themselves physically to bring you into the world, but also they give of themselves daily to make sure you are cared for, somewhat happy, on a road to some sort of a satisfying or successful life, hopefully, and successful life. And yet we look at the Father, and for many of us, our relationship with God is such that He doesn't seem as nice or caring as many moms are on just a daily basis. 
he can seem very distant. We feel like we're on an island. He's far away. He can seem very uh, cold, like, like we're ill-equipped for the work that he calls us to. If you try to get out there and navigate through the world, it's complicated. It's difficult. I'm very tempted by things that he forbids. Why? If he loved me, wouldn't he have built in me a better defense system, a better uh, perceptive ability to cut through the knot of the problems that are coming my way all the time? He can feel impersonal. I think for many people, God practically seems more like a principle or a law than he does a person who loves. And if you feel that way, I mean, those feelings are your feelings. They have legitimacy because you're feeling them, but they're not true. We know that God isn't like that, that he is near to the brokenhearted, that he will never leave us or forsake us, that he has given us everything required for life and godliness. All of this complexity in your world, yeah, it's going to take wisdom, but it's wisdom that he will build in you, giving you what is needed and required. We, we don't serve an impersonal God. We serve a God who is a father, who is pictured in Scripture as rejoicing over us with singing, celebrating <laughs> The, the story of the prodigal son that we've been talking about, where the father wraps him up in his arms. It's not impersonal. It's not distant. It's real. It's passionate. Okay, and yet I feel this disconnect. Here's what I feel, and here's what the Bible says. How do we bring the two together? How does what the Bible says about what God is trump what I currently feel about God? That's what I want us to think about today, the source of our recharging, the source of the the thing that's going to make us steadfast as we anchor ourselves on this cornerstone, which is Christ. Psalm 16, 8 says it this way. If you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn or tap your way to Psalm 16. If you have a paper copy, you can just let it fall open and like right about halfway, that's going to be the Psalms. And then you can kind of work your way towards Psalm 16. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, don't panic. We'll have the words on the screen, and today we're not going to have a lot of words because that's kind of the point, is to focus on one thing and let it grow in your heart and in your mind. Psalm 16:8 says it this way. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Now, just I'm going to ask for your forgiveness. Every time I look down and then breathe out my nose, it hits this and makes a noise. I've been masked up for the last year. I'm not used to breathing normally. I apologize. Just get used to it. I'll, I'll, I'll work on it in the future. What he's saying is that there's something about setting the Lord before him, seeing God, thinking about the Lord and putting him before his mind that creates in him a steadfastness, a solidity, a hope and a joy that doesn't go up and down based on his circumstances and the things that he might be feeling in the moment. He's not shaken. How did he get there? God's given us this 
Bible. And yeah, there's like Bible reading plans and we want you to be in the scriptures. And there's, there's a lot of like real estate to cover with the Bible. And next week we're going to talk more about reading across scripture and understanding something of what you're reading. But today what I want to talk about is letting a part of scripture land. Having a truth from scripture connect. Your Bible is so much bigger than you realize, but how do you access that scripture? First, I want to talk about how not to do it. Because weirdly, there's a lot of ways not to read the Bible. Or there's a lot of dispositions when you bring to scripture that will actually kind of blind you to what you're reading. I want to start there. I want to talk about how not. I want to talk about why, and then I want to talk briefly on how to. But first, how not? It says, I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. His focus in this passage is God. He is looking at God. His focus is on God. The reason that he's reading is to connect with God. But that's not always why we read. I don't know what your perception is of Christianity. For a lot of people, they assume, especially on the outside looking in, that it is a guilt-based religion. That you live your life in a crew guilt. It builds up inside you like plaque on your teeth. And then you come here, and I'm the dentist, and I take some sort of like a the awful thing that they have, that like the brush that has the like weird cherry-flavored, quote-unquote cherry-flavored stuff, and then they just grind your teeth down and get all that off, and then you leave, and then you come back. You accrue more guilt, like plaque on your teeth, you come back, and then I scrub it off, and you have to pay good, and then you leave. That's what people think religion is. That's not what the psalm is describing. That's not what the Bible talks about. But for many people, you look at your life and your scripture as a way to somehow unpack your guilt, like the dentist's. You just sort of think, watch yourself. I have guilt that comes up because of this sin that I've done that I wanted to not do or whatever, but then, oh my goodness, I did it. I feel all of this guilt. The guilt increases, and as the guilt increases, you can track. All of a sudden, my Bible time goes up. Why? Am I going to Psalm 51 and, like, you know, tearing my my clothes and putting dust on my head in repentance? Or... Am I looking for the action of reading Scripture to somehow tell myself that, no, I'm not guilty, I'm, I'm okay? Am I somehow trying to pay God off with my good works? Man, I think people do that all the time. And when they do that, they can watch that as time passes and their guilt sort of hardens, And it it doesn't decrease, but you just sort of become less aware of it, just like we all do with any kind of hardship over time. It sort of scabs over. The guilt sort of scabs over, and then you can watch their Bible time. Because the guilt doesn't sting until it does, and then, whoa, here we go. That's not why we go to read. That guilt payment system is not what Christianity understands in any way. Our job is to connect to the Father, but that's not how some people read. Don't do that. Another way that some people read is they read out of pride. Some people go to the Scripture and pursue it. They open it up. They try to learn it and memorize things about it so that they can be the kind of person who knows about Scripture. People looking from the outside in on Christianity see this a lot too. This is where the people go who want to look like good people. 
This is where the people sit who want to be seen by other people sitting in this room. Now, I think culturally, positively or negatively, that idea is going down because it's not considered like a good thing to go to church as much. But a lot of you still think that way. A lot of you may be tempted. We, we have this Bible reading app that we do together. It's just called the Bible or something like that. If you search it on the app store, you just search Bible. And the first thing that comes up is, I think, this Bible app. And if you click on the Bible app, you can join the Hope Church reading plan. And it's great. Fantastic. I love it. We read it together. You can jump in and you just click on it and then it pulls up your three chapters for the day and you click on the first chapter and read it and click on the next chapter and read and click. And then you can see even people can make comments at the end of, of what God was saying to them through what they were reading. And you can benefit from that and you can have the encouragement of reading something that you maybe wouldn't necessarily read regularly on your own, but in a community you do. However, you jump on the little Bible app, you know what happens? You have your little avatar, your little picture of yourself or whatever, and next to the little picture is a check mark, or not. Because you read, or you didn't, and everybody gets to see who read today. Now that creates a different dynamic, because now why am I reading? Am I reading to have the Bible unpack me and show me who God is? Or am I reading because I want to be the kind of person that has, you know, a check mark? Uh-oh. Scripture talks and warns us in Acts chapter 8 as the Holy Spirit is being poured out and people are receiving Christ and the, the gospel of God in Christ is being um, pressed from the ministry of Christ, which was largely right there in and around Jerusalem, Judea, and it's now, after his death, burial, and resurrection, exploding out into the world. In Acts chapter 8, we get the story of the apostles coming to kind of help to guide and lead the new part of the church that's being formed in Samaria, Jerusalem, Judea, and now Samaria. And this part of the church is, is exploding in this group of people that's got all of this historical baggage. But Acts chapter 8 focuses on this one guy. And you can get upset with him. You can get confused by the passage. My hope, though, is that you will get convicted by it. God knows I need to be convicted by it. Here's what it says. This guy, Simon, who was great. He was called Simon the Great. You can imagine sort of like a cheap magician. And Simon Magus, Simon the Great. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now, that's just plain logic, isn't it? They've got this thing, and when they do the thing, everybody freaks out, and wow, I want to do that thing. I want to have people wow at me. So, I don't know, how much is it? I want to get in. I'm ready. What's the opening package? I, I want to be under your pyramid. What's the, what's the price? I got silver. Let's go. And Peter sees right to the core of him because that's not what religion is. That's what religion is. That's not what God is. Peter says, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. 
You've got neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray that the Lord, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. Peter sees right into the middle of him, probably because Peter's a sinner too, and he understands the appeal. But he sees right into the middle of this Simon guy and says, you thought you could buy God. And you don't even want God. You want the ability to be seen as powerful as you see God is powerful. Ew. But don't you see that in the church? And it happens every day. People get close to God, not because they want to be close to God, but because they kind of want to be seen as God. Which leads into my little third don't do, which is to build your own religion. I think people every day read scripture trying to find what they want to find there. If you actually read through the Old Testament with us, the stories are pretty constant about idolatry. And you might think that idolatry is just this way, right field, nobody ever saw it come in totally different God. But especially in Exodus, when you have... um, Aaron building this like calf, this golden calf as an idol, he immediately connects it to Yahweh. He's not just inventing something new. What he's trying to do is take something of who God is and just sort of cut off the hard part and maybe add a new fun part. It's just some editing. It's just some movement. It's just some shaping. You ever been tempted by that? Boy, Christianity is great, but I wish they didn't have this as a social platform. I wish they didn't think this about people I agree with. Ooh. And so what do you do? You can be tempted to go to the text and try to build what you want to see there. Try to explain away or hide from yourself what you want, don't want to be there. I've already referenced Bowers, but in his testimony video when he got baptized on Easter, did y'all see that? He just says, I, I didn't think I was a sinner because I wrote my own rules. And based on my rules, I was killing it. He didn't say it like that. He doesn't have my charisma. But he said something <laughs> to that. No, he's sitting here, which is why I'm saying that. He said something to the effect of, I, I didn't think I was a sinner because I was writing my own rules. And based on those rules, man, that was really perceptive. Man, I've had to think about that a lot because when I go to the text, how often am I doing this? Take a step back and sort of see it, though. What I'm saying is you can get further from God when you read Scripture. I'm saying that it's possible to spend time, even a lot of time, in Scripture and have it pull you away from God. Why? Because your heart is deceptive. Because the enemy is skilled. It's like a judo master. The judo masters, they take what you throw at them and they kind of bend it back against you. And you have the movies with Jackie Chan and he's getting attacked and he just sort of grabs whatever's next to him and, uh-oh, it's a rubber chicken. But he's still able to, like, beat him away. You pull out the sword of Scripture. And the enemy, if you're not careful, is able to take it and stab you with it. When you start using it to just burn off a little guilt or build and hide your pride and your sin. No, we're not going to do that with Scripture. 
That's how not to go to the scripture. Now, I kind of want you to think about why you would, because those are really false motivations. I'm going to go to the scripture to just sort of feel clean so I can walk away from God, or I'm going to go to the scripture and build myself up so I can be God. No. So then, why do I go to the scripture? Read it again. I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. I go to the scripture to get him. I go to the scripture to be satisfied in him. When we sing these songs, one of the songs we've been singing a lot lately is Graves into Gardens. And this is what it says in that song. It says, I searched the world, but it couldn't fill me. Man's empty praise, treasures that fade are never enough. He's saying very well, I don't know why it doesn't rhyme. It seems like that should happen, but it says very like perceptively and and densely, it says, in the world, there is nothing that will satisfy you. The applause of the world is fickle. The treasures of the world aren't lasting. Not only do they come and go, you come and go. Then you came along, and it's capital Y, he's talking about God. Then you came along and put me back together. And every desire is now satisfied here in your love. Oh, there's nothing better than you. He's saying what we're singing all the time. When I go to the scripture, I'm trying to find this God that loves me like this Man, we say that there is nothing in the world better than love. I hope you agree. That's on this like hierarchy of pleasures. The top is to really be loved. That's what we have all these shirts that say fully known, fully loved. We're talking all the time about what it is to really be understood by somebody, to be really seen, not to wear a mask and be impressive to somebody else and then, oh, yes, and I'm impressed by you and ha, ha, ha. And that's what religion looks like. No, to really be seen in all of your warts and ugliness by somebody else and still to be loved. And that's, just, that's what this so the scripture is promising, that God is saying, I know, I know you. I really know you. And even knowing you, I love you. (laughs) God is love. If you've ever heard that and don't have any idea what it means, it just sort of sounds nice. But, like, it can't just feel good. It has to be true. What, What is being said and is it true? It says in 1 John 4, when it says God is love, this is what it's talking about. It says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God. He knows God. Whoever doesn't love doesn't know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be a propitiation. The propitiation for our sins. It's saying the gospel. It's saying God is love. But what it's saying by God is love is that he really does see you. He really does know you 
as broken, as sinner. Scripture's clear. God's totally holy, absolutely perfect, without blemish. And God, in his holiness, cannot abide sin. It's his job as a righteous judge to stomp it out. And yet, seeing it in you, so great is his love for you. He sends his son to die that you might be forgiven. That's what that propitiation for sins means. Read the Old Testament to understand it well. But he's saying that God's blood was poured out so that you can be cleansed. Really, truly, fully healed. Satisfied in this love. So that's what we go to Scripture and find. We're not just there for more facts. We're not just there to feel clean or proud of ourselves. We're there to actually meet and know and understand this Jesus who loves you like this. It's only actually going to be satisfying in your heart if he's a real person because that's where love comes from. You're not loved by something impersonal. You're not loved by the city of Salt Lake. You're loved by people in the city of Salt Lake because you need a person to love you. This is saying God is a person. That person needs to know you to love you. You know, we're all fans of these very famous people, and wow, that's great. Do you know what it feels like for them? To have legions of people that don't know anything about who they really are telling them they love them? I'm sure it's an intense pressure to maintain whatever it is that they, the, the crowd of people think they know about them. An intense pressure to put on a mask and just pretend to be that person. Got home later one night. I caught Rachel watching something on TV. She was watching this documentary about Britney Spears. <laughs> she was kind of like, oh, uh, you know, <laughs> going to change the channel. And you can tell her I told you this. But, but she, she was captivated by this poor girl. And I'm not going to pretend like I understand everything that's going on in her world. But you can't tell me that some of it's not that. Being adored for something they think they know about you and then, oh, okay, here we go. It's crushing. But to be truly known, to have you, who you are, to be truly known in that way by God and to have him still so love you that he gives his only son so that you don't perish but have everlasting life if you believe in him. Now, if you come to the place where that is what you're pursuing in Scripture, you're pursuing him, being received by him, then now how to? And we're going to be very brief here because I'm running low on time, but, but what I want you to absorb... When you're going to the scripture to see something about this gospel and this love, if you've believed it. If not, let's talk more about why it's true, because it's got to be true if you're going to believe it. Let's talk more. However, if this is you and you say you do believe this and you come to the scripture in order to find this, how do you find it? Well, honestly, you take just a little bit, you put it in front of you, and you take time with it. 
it takes time to absorb the really beautiful things in the world. If you're married, how long did it take you to really realize that you're married? To wake up and she's still there and be like, oh, nice. And then like a month later, wake up and she's still there. It takes time to absorb those really beautiful things. All of these families that were up here with their babies, how long does it take you to realize, no, she's pregnant. We're going to have a baby, and that baby is like our baby. For the dad, I think it hits when they tell you you have to leave the hospital because <laughs> you don't want to. You want to just let the nurses, but no, you have to take the baby and leave, and now it is your baby. It takes time to absorb something you've known for nine months. It takes time to realize the really big things that are out in the world. Rachel and I are watching a, a sitcom, and the dad's trying to encourage this girl that just graduated from college. She's like a math major, and she's got some kind of weird thing about her future, and she's nervous or whatever. And the dad says, hey, sweetie, half of your life is, is having your mind blown. I remember when I heard that there were more stars in the galaxy than grains of rice in a box of Uncle Ben's. And then the math major girl goes, no, there's more galaxies than grains of sand and all the world's beaches. And the dad immediately hyperventilates. <laughs> ah, he can't handle the bigness of the universe because, of course, you can't. You can't take in something like that. Big, big things take time to absorb, take time for them to really dawn on you. You have to sort of change and grow and get bigger in order to accept the bigness of God's love for you. So, take time. We say meditate. When we say meditate, we don't mean it in the Eastern sense. In the Eastern sense, they generally mean something like to empty your mind in order to access sort of a state of non-being. What we're talking about is putting something before your mind and focusing on it intently. And we try to spoon feed you on how to do that. On our website, there's a thing called God Time. If you go to the website, it's on one of the tabs. You click it, and then you click God Time, and boom. And five days a week, there's like a little, little verse, maybe one, maybe two verses, two little paragraphs of just sort of thoughts, sort of meditation on those verses, and then a prayer prompt. If you're new to all this, it's great. If you're an old hand at all this, I still think it's helpful. We write those in order to help you just be constantly putting this before yourself. If you have a habit of doing it in the morning, fantastic. Also, do it in the afternoon. Watch as you identify big holes in your life and in your heart and then take God and his scripture and just start putting it in. Over time, watch as God and his scripture begins to grow in your mind and in your heart, gets to deepen in your mind and in your heart, setting his own agenda for who you are and what the world looks like, scaring you to death with his power and his holiness, but also warming you in a way you didn't know you could be, with his love and his acceptance. Let him minister to you. Recharge. Let me pray that you will. Lord and Heavenly Father, I know that many people are still either new to Christianity or evaluating Christianity, and I hope that this morning, even though I haven't made a lot of like historical arguments or logical reasoning arguments for why it's true, I hope that this morning... They've at least understood why they should want it to be true. And in wanting it to be true, Lord, I pray that they'd be incentivized to, to just keep coming around.
Let us keep talking about what this is, why this is so wonderful, and why it's intellectually rigorous as well. Lord, I pray that for those that are believers and have just gotten into some bad habits when it comes to Scripture, I pray that you'd fix us, Lord. I pray that you would make us into people who are faithful in not only reading, but in believing your word so that we become these trees planted by streams of water, Lord, producing our fruit in our season. Pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.